0: Fox. He's the Dean of Engineering at Cornell University. Um, he was not chosen because his name rhymes with that of this host, host university, but it does turn out to be the case that his name is pronounced Fox. Uh, he has uh, been the Dean of Engineering at Cornell since 2002, and before that he was at, working at Purdue and the University of Illinois. He has his undergraduate degree from Duke University in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science and also a Master of Divinity from from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a Ph.D. in electrical engineering from the University of Illinois. I came across uh, Dr. Fox by reading Christianity Today. In Christianity Today, shortly after I was asked to help organize this conference, and after we had chosen the theme, I read the following in Christianity Today in a page uh, of information uh, about uh, Dr. Fox says here uh, in Christianity Today, Fox's Christian faith shapes the advice he gives students on how to, u- how to best use their engineering education. And then a quote from him, We want to use engineering to help people in disadvantaged communities around the world, to use technology to solve problems, to provide water, shelter, and energy, to solve health issues and information technology needs. As I tell high school students, thinking about what they would want to study, don't just be an engineer to work with gadgets help people worldwide. So I immediately knew that uh, Fox would serve as an excellent person to address us on the theme of engineering as service. Certainly many members of the ASA who are engineers and who work in related professions see their work as service to God, to uh, their fellow um, human brothers and sisters, and to the creation. As dean of engineering at Cornell, uh, Dr. Fox provides funding, support, and course credit to students serving in a nonprofit group called Engineers for a Sustainable World. The group's past projects include improving waste management in a city in Panama and developing power systems for rural areas in Africa. Um, So please join me in welcoming Dr. Fox as he addresses us under the title, Engineering as Service. Thank you.
1: I have several electronic gadgets that I'm gonna play with here. Um, When I show some video. Um, you've heard the theme of my talk uh, in the introduction. Uh, and what I'm gonna do is to show you uh, a number of trends that are occurring in engineering, primarily in higher education. So engineering, primarily undergraduate studies with some reference to uh, graduate studies. And there have been a lot of changes in the past year that are being driven by a combination of, of interesting forces that you observe in your daily lives. And I wanna illustrate that uh, in, in my talk here today. And the encouraging part of this is that it is driving the profession of engineering and indeed the higher education and study of engineering to become a people-focused discipline. And that's going to be the theme of my talk. It's quite different than it's been in the past hundred years in the study of engineering. So, let me get going here. Okay, uh, I, you, you may lose the, the point of the talk if I don't really tell you up front what it's about and repeat it several times, because I'm gonna show you a lot of graphs, a lot of data of uh, trends, enrollments, and areas of study, and I'm gonna show those re- relatively quickly because I only want you to see the, the trends that are occurring. I think the absolute numbers are not as important as, as the trends over the past 10 years. Uh, the first, what I'll do is remind you about the public perception of engineering. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about Dilbert, and uh, then I'll uh, show you some changes that have occurred in five-year increments, starting with 10 years ago, in 1998, 2003, and then up to the present time, around interest that students have when they study engineering or don't study engineering uh, in the university setting, uh, changes that we know about in the global economy, and then remind you of what you've been hearing in the past two, three days about how Uh, Technology, uh, research, science can address global needs about which many of the sessions and tracks have been uh, spoken or have addressed uh, in this conference. Uh, And then what I want to do is to tie this into the verses that that we've heard uh, from Micah uh, several times, including this morning. It's on the cover of our program and also uh, what have been called the two greatest commandments, uh, to love our Lord and to follow him and to also love your neighbor as yourself. There's an opportunity, I believe, uh, to change the way we talk about engineering, uh, what we teach, how we teach it, and also uh, the profession itself. Uh, So let me start with this public perception of engineering. Uh, And again, there'll be a lot of these numbers and tables, and some of them will be fine print, and I'll I'll point out the uh, the important parts. Uh, For those of you that are scientists, which I think are the majority in the room, you'll be pleased to see that uh, Americans, in a survey in 2010, believed that being a scientist was uh, some 20% more prestigious than being an engineer. And I don't think... Uh, <laughs> well, I'm just pleased that engineers are right above members of Congress uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, here. <laughs> I think that's all that's important. And above lawyers on the right-hand column. Uh, there are some over 100 millions of dollars. Actually, the National Academy says hundreds of millions of dollars invested by foundations invested by companies uh, and even uh, to some degree the federal government in improving the public understanding of engineering. Uh, Why is that important? It's not that we need to have uh, our egos uh, enhanced as engineers. It's really that what we need is the ability to track the very best students or at least excellent students to study engineering, uh, to work as engineers and also in some sense uh, to invest in it, particularly in areas of higher ed and, and research. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, the National Academy of Engineering, and I'll abbreviate it, uh, NAE, uh, uh, published a study called Changing the Conversation. This has been ongoing for a a couple of years with a number of engineering deans participating in this, and it's really about how we can change uh, the way that high school students and the public in general thinks of engineering. Uh, You'll be pleased to know that... uh, one of the interesting studies, but less than 15% of those uh, surveyed perceive engineers as being nerdy or boring. So let me play a, uh, a Dilbert cartoon that I'm sure that uh, us engineers are really tired of seeing, but I'm going to play it anyway. And many of you have, have seen it before, but it'll sort of set the context. And I don't have a direct connection for the microphone, so I'm going to do this with uh, my hand.
2: I'm worried
3: about little Dilbert. We could He's turn not up the volume a little kids. bit.
2: What do you mean?
3: Yesterday, I left him alone for a minute, and he disassembled the TV, our clock, and the stereo.
4: That's perfectly normal. Kids take things apart.
3: Oh! The part that worries me is he used the components to build a ham radio set. Oh, dear. Is that bad?
4: Normally, I'd want to run an EEG on him, but the machine isn't working. What is it? I'm afraid your son has the knack.
3: The knack?
4: The knack. It's a rare condition characterized by an extreme intuition about all things mechanical and electrical and utter social ineptitude.
2: Can he lead a normal life?
4: No. He'll be an engineer.
5: You 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 laughed too early. Did you hear
1: the Uh, punchline? You won't lead a normal life. You'll be an engineer. (laughs) Uh, Video is a, a problem in PowerPoint. Uh, This is a a quite interesting survey as well, uh, also published in uh, Changing the Conversation from the National Academy. It's a result of two surveys that occurred in 2003 and and also in 1998, uh, uh, describing the public's perception of whether or not engineers uh, have a significant impact on economic growth, uh, preserving national security, and making strong leaders, and the same with scientists on on the right-hand side. Um, and then below it is uh, quite diff- uh, different uh, responses for engineers versus scientists. So it, as you might guess, uh, the perspective on engineers from the public was that uh, they, uh, both in 98 and 2003, uh, can or do have an impact on the, on, on the economy, uh, possibly national security, and who knows about making strong leaders. There's sort of a mixed perspective here. And scientists was, was the numbers were a little lower. This is the part here that is uh, insightful, and that is that the public perception of engineering is that it doesn't have a lot to do with people as individuals. It doesn't have a lot, being an engineer or studying engineering doesn't have a lot to do with saving lives, compared to being a scientist, which is uh, above 65%, uh, not, we're not sensitive to social, uh, societal concerns, uh, 28% and 47%, and uh, we're not very engaged in caring about the community. Compared to scientists, which had dramatically different, different numbers, the coming out of this is the National Academy is proposing a set of taglines and positioning statements. And I, I don't want you to read this rather verbose and uh, self-congratulatory uh, statement, but it, I wanted to point out how uh, twice in this in this uh, statement how the focus is on people and on individuals and improving uh, society and individual lives. So having improving lives and having a direct and positive effect on people's everyday lives. This is a common theme that is growing increasingly in the past couple of years. Uh, And you're going to see how this is also reflected in students' interest as well, as I I show you some of that. Uh, So let's look at changes in students' interest. Let's start with 1998. Uh, and uh, what I'll do is I'll show you uh, trends in enrollments and uh, the areas that engineering students are studying a- around the country. We graduate, um, I know there are a lot of you that are from uh, Canada that are here, and all of my data and all of my comments are uh, specific to the U.S., but uh, from what I have seen, it applies uh, to Europe and also to, uh, to Canada, but not necessarily to Asia, some of the numbers that I'm going to show you. So we, ha- we graduate roughly 70,000 engineering students across the U.S., there are about 310 engineering colleges in the United States offering bachelor's degrees in engineering, and uh, the, the overall enrollment is about 300,000 students studying engineering at any given time. Uh, this is the number of students graduating with uh, degrees in each of those years. Uh, this year, 2007, it went down a little bit, but it's, it's relatively stable. Uh, the blue here are the master's degrees, and they have also gone down even more this, this past year. And the, the green, which you can't see very well because of the scale, is the PhD numbers, and they're increasing, as it turns out. Uh, this, is the, and this actually shows you the graduate enrollment, not the, the degrees, but the graduate enrollment, and you can see how the, the PhD numbers are, are indeed increasing. But the number of students studying engineering is relatively stable, even as, as the population increases. Uh, 1998, the most popular majors by far were computer science and electrical engineering. Uh, I was uh, in electrical and computer engineering at Purdue, and at that point, we had uh, some uh, 2,000 students studying electrical and computer engineering at Purdue, uh, freshmen through, through uh, Ph.D. Uh, we're not nearly that large at Cornell, and the numbers as at uh, Purdue and elsewhere have dropped significantly in, in that time. I remember going in 1997 to a conference. It was an IEEE conference called SRDS, Symposium on Reliable and Distributed Systems, which was my research area uh, in computer engineering. And there was a fellow there that had left as a vice president from Oracle, and he was starting a new company at that point in 1997 to address the Y2K problem. Remember the the Y2K problem? uh, Which all of us were consumed by, and now we have fortunately all, all forgotten. But that keynote address started with the clip from a movie uh, by, that has Tom Cruise in it called Jerry Maguire. Have you all seen this movie? Okay, I'm going to show you the. I'm going to show you the clip. I've been waiting for for uh, for eleven years to show this in a talk. I've never done it before, so I got to do this. But what it, the reason he showed this at the keynote for this talk was. This was really the environment in 1997 and also 1998. And it was the environment for startup companies. It was the environment for students, what they were studying in engineering. Uh, they all wanted to go out and uh, get rich, and they all wanted to be shown shown the, uh, shown the money. So let's see if I can get this to work.
4: What can I do for you, Rod? You just tell me what can I do for you. It's a very personal, very important thing. Are you ready, Jeff? I'm ready. You want to make sure you're ready,
3: Show me the money. Oh! Show Me!
4: Me! Money! <laughs> Jerry, does that make you feel
6: good just to say that? Say it with me one time, Jerry. Show you the money. Oh,
4: no, no, you can do better than that, Jerry. I want you to say it with you with me and him, brother. Hey, I got Bob Sugar on the other line. I better hear you say it. Yeah,
6: yeah, no, 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 Show you the money. No, not, not show you.
4: Show me the money! Show me the money! Yeah! Louder. Show me the money! That's it, brother! What you got to do? Show me the money! I need to feel you, Jerry! Show me the money! (laughs) My
1: <laughs> that, that was the environment. Uh, it was really about uh, making money quick, as as uh, students, and also um, in uh, with a lot of startups around the country. And it was really contagious, even in the Midwest where I was in at, uh, in Urbana-Champaign and and Purdue. Uh, it was about showing you the money. Now, there was a lot of good that came out of that. Uh, you can see these companies up there that are that are uh, ones that are ones that we know about, or at least our children know about, and uh, interact with on a daily basis. Uh, It's interesting to know that 10 years ago, Google didn't exist. Uh, 10 years ago, in one month, it was started, uh, or or, uh, 9 years ago, in 11 months, it was started. So uh, Google didn't exist. Wikipedia, uh, Second Life, MySpace, uh, Flickr, Facebook, and YouTube, just 3 years ago, all of these companies were started, and in some sense, they came out of that environment, of uh, the intensity of the 19, uh, late 1990s. Uh, and the focus, as I said up here, was really on around electronics, information, communications, and uh, what you can do with with uh, technology. And it really influenced what students were studying at that point. Uh, there have been um, changes, though, in, as you might guess. Uh, five years after that, the real focus in 2003 was a dramatic change to students wanting to study something that was at the intersection of life sciences and engineering, and specifically biomedical engineering was was catching on around the country. Departments of biomedical engineering were uh, created at most of the large engineering colleges around the nation. Uh, Majors were started that it did not exist before, uh, as well as masters and PhD programs. And you can see here that in five years, Biomedical engineering went up uh, up to 3,000 students. Uh, and in uh, 1998, except for a few places, there were not many uh, universities that had biomedical engineering majors. A few did that had large hospitals attached to them, but most, most did not. Uh, mechanical engineering has, has grown, uh, both relatively in absolute numbers. And aerospace is a very cyclic major, depending on how the aerospace industry is doing. But in 2003, the focus was on human health and engineering from a perspective of uh, student interest. Uh, these are the numbers at, at, at Cornell in terms of what students are interested in studying, and it's over a period here of seven years, and I, you don't need to know what, the, obviously the absolute major is, but you can see each color is, is a different line. So here is computer science in 2001, and now down here uh, in 2007, the students that were entering as freshmen in, in 2007. And that's the same trend nationally. About one quarter as many students are studying computer science now as they were in 2000, 1999, uh, 2001. Electrical engineering has gone down some. Uh, anything with life sciences in it, uh, which for us would be our biological and environmental major, our chemical and biomolecular engineering major. And the big change is around undecided here. And I think that's, that's relevant, and I'll come back to that in, in a moment. Five uh, percent change there. And that's... That's the case in most uh, universities with which I'm acquainted. I have too many gadgets. Um, <clears throat> so changes in, in the global economy. Uh, those were, were forces that you all and each of us have experienced. This is a different indicator. This was the, these are the number of interviews our students had at Cornell. In, uh, in uh, 10 years ago, in 1998, roughly every student had 10 interviews. Uh, we have about 900, almost 1,000 students that are, that are looking for jobs at any given time. And uh, they had over 9,000 interviews in uh, 1997. Uh, this is the effect of the change in the economy and specifically the, the dot com change. Uh, that information, computer science, uh, rapid recruiting in startup companies, and in fact even the large companies uh, really stopped recruiting. And so it dropped down from students having ten interviews to where they had to scramble to have uh, three interviews. And you can see it's, it's uh, picked up since that time. So that there was a national response as well, uh, which is still ongoing. There are Some uh, six, seven reports that have come out of either the National Academy of Engineering or from industry or from the National Science Foundation or from uh, engineering higher ed itself uh, that are relevant to this and uh, show you uh, some of the changes and trends and ideas about how to address uh, some of the changes. This was a set of uh, books that describe aspirations and changes in engineering education called Engineer of 2020. Produced by a number of educators in engineering. Uh, this, this book is from the National Science Foundation. This was a report on uh, from industry leaders on innovation. Uh, this has had this book here, Rising Above the Gathering Storm, has had a major impact, and it was a combination of, uh, of educators and industry leaders writing about the challenges we face in the US uh, around innovation and competitiveness. And now, as a result of that, there's been a bipartisan Uh, focus on what's called Americans Competes Act. Uh, This is the report actually from from the White House, but it's a bipartisan report on how we can invest in the U.S. in areas that will help us focus and enhance uh, mathematics, science, and engineering, both funding for research, but also in education, K through 12 and higher ed. Each one of these is a response that has occurred uh, coming out of about 2003 over the past couple of years. Uh, I, I won't read you this, but this, this the aspirations for the engineer in the 2020 uh, thought hard, but I think not completely about what we want to uh, how what we want as values for the students that are graduating, which I thought was an important and laudable uh, goal, but uh, they're not very inspirational. If you read through this, uh, we aspire to have an engineering profession that will rapidly embrace creativity, invention, cross-disciplinary fertilization, et cetera. But this does not capture the, uh, the imagination of students or of, of the public. And I can say that since I was involved in helping to write this. Uh, not a major writer, but I was involved. Uh, now I want to show you a little bit of demographics um, that about the changes for the future. Uh, this right here represents the number of students graduating from high schools in the U.S over the the past uh, 10, 15 years and up into the next 10 years. Uh, So you can see that we're really at a peak of the number of students graduating uh, across the U.S. from high schools and it'll decline a little bit. The startling part, uh, if you haven't seen this kind of data before, is how uh, the yellow here are the uh, white non-Hispanic students uh, from high school and you can see they're soon, soon gonna be in the minority. Uh, roughly 25% of the students graduating from high school, almost 30% will be Hispanic, Latino, and almost 50% will be what we call an engineering underrepresented minorities. Uh, the percentage of students interested in studying engineering has declined slightly. Uh, and this is the percentage of, high, of, of freshmen students that are going to college. Uh, and you can see this is broken down by, by race and gender. Uh, the bottom here are women. Uh, and you can see, despite a lot of efforts nationally, uh, the percentage of students interested in studying engineering uh, that are female has actually slightly declined, which is different than many, many areas of, of science. And I'll show you more data on this in a moment. Uh, this is, uh, I know you can't read the bottom, but I want to just point out the big peaks. This is the percentage of bachelor's degrees awarded to women by discipline. It's, uh, in 1997, it was 18.1%. 10 years ago it was 20%. So it's actually declined with a relatively stable total number of students uh, studying engineering. And and the highest percentages are in those areas that have a component of life sciences. Here's biomedical engineering. Uh, Here is, over here is environmental engineering, uh, biological and, and agriculture engineering. Uh, over time, I already mentioned, it's actually declined uh, a little bit. It used to be in the low 20s, and now it's in the, the high 19, low, low 18%. Uh, and no better in other areas uh, of, of students of color, African American or Hispanic, uh, the numbers are low numbers, but they're, they're going down, if anything, with African Americans, 5.4 down to 5. Uh, in Latino, Hispanic, it's roughly uh, 5 to 6% stable. Uh, At the PhD level, it's a little bit different. Uh, The traditional large majors still maintain their uh, large size, electrical engineering, mechanical, chemical, uh, computer science. Computer science is still the number two uh, uh, producer of PhDs if you look at, if you add together those that graduate from engineering colleges and those that graduate in uh, arts and sciences colleges. Uh, So electrical engineering and computer science at the PhD level is still the highest more than 60% of those students are international students. Um, So it doesn't represent the interest uh, necessarily of our our own high school students. Uh, And very similar statistics in terms of interest of the women that are getting PhDs. uh, In the life sciences is where the percentage wise they they dominate. This is architecture over here, which which is uh, unusual in, in many universities for engineering. Uh, So it's roughly 20, 21% of the PhDs in engineering are are women, but a lot of variance across uh, the discipline. Uh, Ethnicity, it's it's also very low, three to four percent for African-Americans and and Hispanics are about three percent. In terms of faculty uh, in engineering colleges, the gender diversity is roughly 10, 11, 12% in almost every engineering college in, in the country progress being made, but it's, but it's been uh, very, very slow. Let me now talk about uh, the, the global need. And this is, again, the focus of many of our talks. And so we have a change in the interest of students uh, which have moved from the what I would call the computer science, information science realm into life sciences and then rapidly into global climate change uh, and areas of uh, sustainable development. And now, Coupled with that is, and maybe uh, tied to it directly, are, are the needs that, that we know about and we, we see in the marketplace. Uh, this February, the National Academy of Engineering uh, put out a booklet and a video about engineering grand challenges. And notice how many of those, and I'm gonna actually show you the video in a moment, notice how many of those have to do with, with people and uh, the quality of lives for us as, as individuals. Uh, they're grouped here in four different categories by Chuck Vest uh, around energy, uh, global climate change, sustainable development, uh, health medicine, engineering, and biomedical engineering. Uh, this is an interesting one, uh, human capability and joy, and reducing vulnerability to human and natural threats. Let me play the video for you because it is, it is both a way of uh, attempting to capture what are important problems to be addressed in a a global scale, but also it uh, describes a a way of thinking a little bit differently about engineering. So let me try this again. I think this is my last video.
4: The focus of our grand challenge study, it was not just thinking about what could be invented, but was rather more focused on what needed to be invented.
7: These problems are no longer simply those of business or politics. But if we don't have the appropriate leadership and technology and development of new solutions to these problems, they simply will not be solved.
8: This next century is going, is going to be one that is very different. It is going to be one that does look at, at broad and integrated concepts like the vulnerability of our world like the sustainability of our way of life and our environment and the betterment of civilization. You know the contributions that engineering can make to the health of our environment is extraordinary. It's only going to be engineering that will, will will get us where we want to go. These are issues that are affecting the global planet. These are issues that are affecting every person's life, and will be
4: more so in our children's and their children's generation. Um, in the case of nitrogen, there are ways of developing fertilizers that operate more efficiently, so you don't need to use so much of it, and the
7: better ways of distributing water and fertilizer to plants. If we can crack any of these challenges having to do with energy, whether it's a total revolution in how solar cells work and how they can become economical, if it is even sequestering the carbon dioxide that uh, is generated by burning of fossil fuels, if it is nuclear fusion, any one of these alone could be a game changer in a very important way. So
4: these are various technical challenges for dealing with the legacy problems from the 19th and the 20th century. This infrastructure that was built during the 20th century, including the electrical distribution infrastructure, and the sewage infrastructure, the water distribution infrastructure, is decaying and deteriorating.
8: Reverse engineering the brain is actually a brilliant challenge because we're using Mother Nature's blueprint to understand exactly how this complex entity called the human
7: brain works, how it functions. The technologies developed by engineers to instrument the work of neuroscientists, and the ability of engineers to understand, analyze, and work with extremely complex systems will enable us to do things like personalized learning, and therefore improve the education for each individual.
8: We can't move into 21st century medicine without health informatics. It's that information that is the step, is the analytical tool that will explain elements of both prevention as well as therapy of health, illness, wellness. Thanks to engineering and technology, uh, we will be able to break into a whole new dimension of medicine.
4: Technology should not be just about fixing problems we face but a way of giving us a better appreciation of who we are and what our universe is. Virtual reality is already here in some forms. We still are very fuzzy on how it can be most effectively used in the future. This is not dealing with a problem we are facing today. It's looking for a way of giving us a broader vista of life, giving us a greater appreciation of our own potential. We are on a planet that is shrinking.
8: Many of the threats, the nefarious threats like a nuclear bomb and also the natural threats, they bring us all together. We are not just an isolated nation or an isolated state or community or individual. And I think that engineering is going to enable us to look at this in a much more global way and and come up with solutions that are for all of us.
4: Another legacy of the 20th century is the vulnerability of the cyberspace on which we've become dependent. So we need to be developing the processes and technologies that will reduce that vulnerability. We know we can make clean water,
8: but wait a minute. Right now, it's just too expensive, whether it's reverse osmosis or, or, or some other nano approach where you can do it even better. We will be able to make this not only faster,
7: better, cheaper, but more widely available. These grand challenges, will stretch our human capability for understanding and creativity. Otherwise, they wouldn't be grand challenges. So these are things that this committee of international experts and creative people can see as possibly being solved. They have the ring of things that we can and must do. The precise path is unknown. That's what makes them challenges and the deep importance is what makes them grand challenges.
8: Advancing society is about technology, and our children and our children's children are going to feel the benefits of the grand challenges of engineering. Engineers have a very, very challenging job they have. I think they're up to it.
1: Well, enough about engineering. It. What I really appreciate there is the the focus on uh, the impact on people and on society, and it changes the language about how you talk about uh, teaching engineering and uh, and also practicing the profession. Uh, And what it does, it gives us for the first time in engineering, I think, the opportunity to talk about not just the math and the science and this use-inspired research that we're all engaged in in engineering and and the technology we want to develop and the problems we want to solve, but actually what it means to live and to love our neighbors uh, and to act justly, love mercy, uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. And it provides that which we've been lacking in engineering uh, up to this point. We ha- engineering has probably been the most difficult discipline uh, in which to bring your faith into in a normal conversation from my perspective. It's quite different than life sciences or even the physical sciences. Uh, and uh, certainly different than the social sciences and humanities. Uh, But this, because when we think about engineering as being a people profession, gives us the opportunity to talk about that and and indeed uh, the meaning of of what it means to be an individual here on this planet. Uh, Here are three pictures that really capture uh, concepts that that I have been thinking about over the past couple of years. Uh, About a year ago, there was a special issue of Time Magazine about the case for national service, how we as, as a society, uh, can working together, uh, can improve the environment, both physical and, uh, and also economic and uh, health-wise, for all peoples uh, in the country and indeed worldwide when we work together. Uh, there's also this book, which you may have heard about, that uh, came out a, a couple of years ago called Wikonomics, Uh, using the idea of a wiki, which I think I heard ASA now has, and uh, Wikipedia. Um, And around the side, you probably can't see it, but it has uh, some of those companies that I mentioned, uh, YouTube, uh, Second Life, Flickr, MySpace, uh, companies that uh, started all in the past three, four, five years. And it's mass collaboration. It's people working together as a community. It reminds me of uh, the the model of a church, uh, an engaging and improving uh, and uh, making an impact on a global scale, solving problems you couldn't do as a small group of people and certainly not as an individual. Uh, uh, Bob Roberts has a book called The Localization, which I have a hard time uh, uh, repeating or saying, but it's about how uh, this interconnectedness that we have, this this flat world that we have, is really... uh, Uh, in some sense, the way that we're destined to be, interconnected as individuals. And it gives us a great opportunity as the church uh, to have an impact in a community, working together uh, in sort of mass collaboration uh, and also in service uh, to others. I want to give you a few examples of what has happened in engineering education uh, as I I conclude uh, that uh, embody this. And these are special programs, uh, sometimes specific courses, uh, and they're repeated across the country. George Fox has them uh, with a large number of their students involved in service projects, and it's the case in almost every engineering school. And this is something that's happened in the past three, four, five years. It didn't exist before that time. Uh, In 2001, at Purdue, there was something started called Engineering Projects and Community Service, uh, where students worked together, EPICS, uh, in, on projects to help the nonprofit community in uh, the state of Indiana. And since that time, this has uh, spread across the country, and now there are epic uh, chapters in uh, a large number of universities. Uh, it's a form of service based learning, but it, it's really more than that. It's uh, not just going out and working to, to help individuals, but it really embodies what engineering is about collaboration, mentoring. Uh, and uh, all aspects of, of using uh, in the capstone environment what you, have, uh, what you have been learning as an engineering student. Um, uh, there is uh, several other organizations that are looking more globally. There is one uh, called Engineers for Sustainable World. There's another one called Engineers Without Borders. Both of these have won national and international awards uh, for what they are doing. And that's, they're bringing together practicing engineers with students and working in developing communities on, on a worldwide basis. Usually getting course credit as part of this with faculty involved, and also uh, having an impact on, on a community. These are phenomenally popular with students. And the other part that's quite interesting is to look at the diversity and the makeup of these. Uh, both EPICS and Engineers for Sustainable World, with whom I'm uh, well acquainted, have nearly 50% women as, as part of them. AquaClear is another example. There are many of these. This one is in Honduras with uh, groups of students uh, spending semesters uh, providing and developing ways of uh, providing clean water in uh, rural parts of Honduras in a sustainable, sustainable manner. Examples, this is propagating, as I said, uh, on a national and international basis. And since I've been here, I've heard of similar kinds of opportunities in the life sciences where uh, students are working together with with scientists and looking at ways in the life sciences, environmental sciences of uh, doing something very similar. I think these changes which are coming together, it's a combination of developments in technology with uh, changes in, in uh, interests of students and also changes in the problems that we need to solve, our awareness of those problems. They've always been there but we now believe we've got to do something about them. It gives us an opportunity particularly in engineering, when we have focused in the past really on having an impact on the economy or problem solving, but now we can talk about making a difference in individual lives. It can change the way we teach and how we teach and what we teach. The challenge that we face as educators is that right now what we're doing is really impacting a a few disciplines or a few courses, and the challenge is to, to spread that across all of engineering. Electrical engineering and computer science need these same concepts and students need to understand that computer science and electrical engineering can be about people. It can be about how you can uh, impact people's lives through those disciplines, just as it is in the life sciences and in the environmental sciences. It also changes the demographics of those who study and practice engineering, which we very much need. We need the very best students, uh, not just from one gender or, or one race, uh, if we're going to uh, excel in this area. I'm going to conclude with just putting those pictures up there. And uh, uh, this is a a book that uh, I was just put onto a few months ago that uh, many of you probably are are well aware of it. I would encourage you to take a look at it. It really is uh, bringing together Tom Friedman's concepts around a flat earth, but uh, also bringing in the church into uh, into that global economy. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Kent. We really appreciate your leading us through some of the changes that have been happening and how we uh, can participate in that and be involved and see our life as in, in the engineering area as a service. We've got plenty of time for uh, questions, so I believe these two microphones are probably uh, live. So if you could make your way, if you have a question, to one of those microphones, that would be great. And if you can't make it there, then I will pass this microphone over to you. Uh, we've got a good amount of time, so... Um, Will uh, allow for some good interaction here.
9: It seems that the same folk rush to the microphones often. <laughs> I. Um, it's the same questions. <laughs> well, th- those those evolve, but slightly.
0: Right, and we need I, embryonic answers, right? That I was mind. an
9: engineering educator for a season of my life. The most recent one that generated income, at least. And I was involved with accreditation and the ABED requirements for uh, social, ethical uh, sustainability and so forth. Um, And I was uh, struck by your um, linkage to Friedman's concept that the world is flattening, and you said we're all more interconnected. At least that's the argument for flattening. At the same time, the world that I read about and watch on TV and elsewhere, is going the other direction. It's degenerating degenerating into tribalism and ethnic and religious strife. I don't see it as being more interconnected. I see it as separating itself into smaller entities that are um, at odds with each other. So here you're claiming that engineering is connecting the world, but in fact it may be going the other direction. I wondered if you'd comment about which is right and If tribalism is the the real trend, what does engineering have to offer to overcome that trend?
1: Well, obviously I'm right and you're wrong. But... uh, (laughs) The truth is, both happen. And and the reasons are probably technology. Uh, Technology allows you, if you want, uh, to to isolate yourself. and it allows you to uh, you use the word tribalism uh, to, to enforce that. As a community, you can be intensely interconnected and, and wall off the rest of the world with, with the right uh, appropriate use or inappropriate use of, of technology. Um, it, 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 what, what we're seeing is, I think, the opportunity to be interconnected. And most people uh, that I've observed uh, and know about uh, take advantage of that. Not everybody will, uh, but particularly the generations that are much younger than us, uh, the ones that, that uh, you know, instant messaging is is no longer in use. They, they're really in a, a social network that is much more than, than cell phones and instant messaging. It's a it's world that they live in uh, through some of these uh, social spaces that, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so it is, a, a, I think the technology uh, can obviously in all cases uh, be used to, to uh, create and uh, do damage between groups of people uh, and to create walls between those people. But I, I don't think inherently does it promote tribalism. And I, I really, in some sense, I, I would not agree that uh, the world is becoming more fragmented. What I observe is is a lot more connectedness and a lot more uh, engagement. And those areas that want to stay isolated have a hard time keeping that, keeping that in place. You may have a different observation, but... Uh, That's what I see. Personal perspectives, yes.
4: Thank you, Dr. Fox.
1: You all are very good at pronouncing my last name. Thank you. Thank you, (laughs)
4: yes. Once you've courted and captured the imagination of the public toward engineering, how will you deliver on that imagination in other words, what will an engineer's training and insight bring to the table that no other professional training might? Mm.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It, uh, I've not done it here, but I personally try to talk very little about the profession itself. Uh, when I talk to high school students or to parents or even our own students, I talk about education and not about what you're gonna do after you graduate. Because uh, to me, it, it doesn't really matter uh, a great deal what it is that you study, as long as you've had a rigorous, a challenging and exciting uh, four years or longer in, in college. Uh, and engineering, what it does is it provides you, as the, the life sciences do to a great deal, it thinks you to think very systematically. And nowadays, how to collaborate, how to work together, and obviously how to problem solve, and to, to solve problems that you thought were, were unsolvable. And those disciplines, those skills, are appropriate no matter what you do. So I try not to talk about the profession. I talk about uh, the, the, uh, the tool set that you, that you uh, learn whenever you study engineering. Thank you.
7: Yeah. Thanks for your presentation. As, a, as an engineering educator, I found that challenging and, and interesting, the four NIH grand challenges present some potentially very, very profound ethical dilemmas. Yeah. In particular, the expand human capabilities. And I think of transhumanism and some of the the questions that I have about that. How can we as Christian mm. yeah. engineering faculty, as Christian engineers, as Christian users of engineered technology recognize those dilemmas, and how can we bring Christian principles to bear on addressing them?
1: That's a great question. Uh, And it bears on this idea of, as we make uh, profound discoveries as scientists uh, and solve uh, great problems as engineers, those discoveries and those inventions can be used to, to great evil as well, in each one of these areas. Um, whether it's medicine or whether it's uh, security issues, national security issues, obviously that can be used for warfare, each one of those, virtual reality, uh, every one of them. Um, and I, you know, tied into all this is the ethical use of what you discover. And, and how you, and that provides, I think, a great opportunity again, uh, particularly in a secular university where I'm looking for opportunities more than anything else uh, to teach something more than just the facts, uh, to teach something about uh, right and wrong, and to teach something about uh, the, the higher calling in our lives. So I, I think just the fact. That each of those can be used for evil also brings about just the natural reaction in students about wanting to know whether or not uh, and, and to, to investigate that and, and to think about it. Now, how you enforce that in students? You know, we have our set of ethics courses that are required. I'm not convinced they do a lot of good, to, to be honest. Uh, we've, we've tried a number of things. We've tried interactive theater uh, with ethics for our freshman students. We have tried. Uh, research uh, courses uh, for the grad students in ethics. We have uh, an endowed program, an endowed professor in ethics. Um, it's something I wrestle with. I'm just not sure that we're we're reaching the students uh, in in a in a meaningful way because most of those students uh, don't come from a Christian perspective, uh, and uh, they they come from a quite different perspective. So it's something I wrestle with. But it gives us the opportunity, which is, if, if anything else, that's, I value that more than anything else, to talk about something more than just the science and the engineering. Yeah. But I'd value your insights in that area.
6: As an engineer, I think one of the uh, places that, uh, for probably structural reasons, I was very poorly trained in was communicating with non-engineers. Uh, you... If if you're a good engineer, you at least learn how to write an engineering paper or read one. But in in terms of talking to the people with the real needs, I'm a consultant talking with my clients who are not engineers. I've had to learn all of that since engineering school. And what I see in things like capstone programs is the attempt to place, quite often place uh, student engineers with other engineers to learn engineering. And that's good. That mentoring is good but it, it, it some, in some ways it takes them away from the summer job where they're working in the cannery or wherever, where they might just get the insights that they need to build the next great product. Uh, what, uh, what what could you see that could in, enhance the worldview of engineers that way?
1: And, and the ability to communicate?
6: Uh, to non-engineers. Yeah, to non-engineers. Communicate yeah. what engineering is to learn yes. what the real problems are. Yep,
1: yeah. yep. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's a recognized challenge, uh, and many students are attracted to engineering, at least traditionally, because they they uh, don't want to have to take those courses where you're forced to communicate, either writing or, or speaking. Uh, and many of us get frustrated when it's you know a seminar where it's discussion and and not problem solving. Uh, but I. I do believe that engineering education, though, has made a lot of progress in this area in the past 15 or so years. Uh, in uh, it, it, you know, if, if you look at the verbal SAT scores of students uh, entering engineering, it's really similar to those that outside of, of the discipline uh, in, in many universities. So it is the students are coming in uh, with uh, pretty good uh, preparation and communication skills. And the the discipline itself has recognized the importance. Many times through advisory councils, uh, those that come from industry that are successful know they've got to be able to communicate. Certainly to other engineers and scientists, but also to to non-engineers, because sometimes they're running the company. Uh, So it's it's, it's a recognized uh, need, and there are many programs in place. I I could tell you about ours, but I, I won't bother you. But it is important, it's good.
0: Yes, in the
3: back.
0: Just if you could possibly make your way down to the microphone, that would be great. <laughs> is it just a follow up on this particular question? Okay, we'll follow up and then we'll go on to the other question over here.
3: I'm an English professor at Washington State University across the river here. And a believer, and um, uh, pleased to be finally here at the conference and um, but I, I do see it though I think students come in okay communicators, uh, and I uh, will say too that I love having engineering students in my classes um, in the interdisciplinary classes that I teach. Um, as a senior person now in the department, I see some ongoing struggles between the engineering department and the English department about even technical writing classes, which up till now, up till recently, have been required for engineering students, but um, the wrestling match between (laughs) engineering and English on uh, what that class ought to look like finally ended when the engineering department said, we don't want a three-credit class, we want two-credit class because that will put our students over, yeah. you know, the number. And so, you know, our brand-new uh, University of Arizona Ph.D. in professional writing said, fine, you know, we're not going to teach it. And so I think, you know, we can't minimize the conflict there between, um, uh, you know, whether or not engineers really do want to talk to anybody else <laughs> and, uh, and uh, the rest of the university even just uh, to, to name one group.
1: Yeah. I I think the real challenge, I I don't want to take us away from the the main theme of of the meeting, but the real challenge, and I have scars on my back from engineering curriculum uh, debates and committees and task forces, Uh, the real challenge is that, uh, and this this has to be addressed for the future, is that we as educators, and I don't know, it's probably the same in the physical sciences and life sciences, uh, we want to uh, teach everything in four years. Uh, it, it, Cornell used to be five years for the bachelor's degree in engineering, and uh, about 25 years ago it was changed to a four-year program, and there's a great quote from a civil engineering professor who was interviewed 30 years ago and asked about the five-year bachelor's degree program and, and what he thought of it, and he said, well, it has one weakness. It really ought to be six years. Uh, so it's, and every, almost every engineering faculty member that I know thinks in their discipline there ought to be a couple more courses, or at least we ought to add hours. And that, that conflicts with everything else, including writing and speaking. But, you know, as, 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 as Christians, we also have to communicate, whether we like it or not. Uh, we've got to communicate to our Lord, uh, and uh, we've got to communicate with one another. You can't really follow Micah if you can't communicate. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be eloquent. Uh, there aren't many of us engineers that are, but you, need to, you do need to be able to communicate. I've had yeah. some
3: wonderfully eloquent engineers. I, I, I would say the other thing that's been really a wonderful um, aspect of communicating with engineers is to have uh, believers cross campus among faculty get together and uh, work at their communication. <laughs> Even though we don't always communicate, uh, we don't always see eye to eye by any means. Mm. It's been really wonderful, mm. fruitful thing.
1: Thank you.
2: Oh, hi, I was just wondering if um, I spent some time in physics departments, in, including um, as a research scientist at Johns Hopkins, and the reality there in, in most of these big research universities, at least in physics, is that the vast majority of graduate students are not U.S. citizens. They've come from overseas, which is not a bad thing. We're glad that people around the world are interested in coming and being educated, but it may also imply that very few um, U.S. citizens are, are going in this direction, U.S. students. And I was wondering, I mean, I mean at Johns Hopkins, the situation is, not, is pretty much 80% of the graduate students are not U.S. Um, students. So I wondered if that's the case in engineering and if that's a concern for you and for this country.
1: Yep, it, uh, th- there's a lot of data. And actually, at, at the end of this talk, I, I, I didn't delete all those slides, but I, I could show you about that. It is um, a couple of points. Um, number one, we as a nation really rely on these immigrants. If if we didn't have them, we'd be in big trouble. Uh, So engineering, the PhD population of engineering around the nation is about 70-plus percent international. Um, uh, It depends on the university. At Cornell, it's 50%, but but on average, it's it's over 70% uh, are are international. And uh, that is... the, The challenge there is not that percentage. The challenge is that those students are uh, are no longer going to be coming to the US from China and at some point from India. And about three quarters of that seventy some percent come from China and come from India. Uh, So we have seen uh, countries on a gradual basis uh, significantly increase their own PhD studies. Uh, China now uh, is sending a lot fewer students overseas to get PhDs. Uh, it's not that they're coming here and going back. They don't come here. Uh, and, uh, and Taiwan no longer sends any PhDs. My first uh, 10 PhD students, I think half of them were from Taiwan. Now there's no more students from Taiwan. They all get their PhDs in, in Taiwan if they're going to get a PhD in engineering. Uh, so th- th- that's the challenge, is the fact that it, uh, we, what we want are not just numbers. We want the best students around the world. Um, but
2: do you think yeah. this country is lacking in U.S. and people that will stay in the U.S. To, to be engineers, to do the kinds of service that you're talking about? Uh,
1: it, it, do we want a gr- growing number of our own students to go on for Ph.D.s? We want the growing number of the best students to go on for Ph.D.s. And and to be honest, to me, it, it uh, right now it's, it doesn't matter to me if they're international or they're U.S., but I'm worried about the future. Um, so if if, uh, if these students can can go on to other disciplines, uh, our own undergrads, uh, or they can uh, find meaningful uh, professions with a master's degree, which is usually what they get, uh, then that doesn't bother me, frankly. Although there are initiatives, federal funding for fellowships, et cetera, to increase the number of PhD students. But I am worried about the number uh, of overseas students that may not come in the future, or at least the best students. But you know, it gives us a great opportunity, too, to interact with those students. Um, I'm having dinner tomorrow night with a Muslim student of mine uh, that works at Intel uh, who was, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, faith. He's a devout Muslim. I would go to his office and he'd be on the praying in his, his office. So it, it gives you a, a set of opportunities that, that I wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Our last question will come from Gary over there.
5: Okay, I'm Gary Patterson from Carnegie Mellon, which is another one of your sister engineering schools. Uh,
0: I've heard of it. <laughs>
1: I think you were ranked one higher than us last year. That's, that's...
5: uh... Alas. So, students are socialized into a community of engineers. And just adding an ethics course doesn't really do very much good. I'm always amazed that they pay us to talk to students where virtually nothing is learned by listening. Uh, Ethics is learned by being socialized into a community if the engineering community at the college is composed of engineers who practice ethically on a day-to-day basis, who conduct their regular courses in an ethical way, students pick this up. On the other hand, if the kind of typical ethics that characterizes American education is the way engineering is being run, students pick that up too. So I think it has to start with the community of engineers practicing visible ethics in their day-to-day practice. The students will pick that up. They, the, one of the reasons they're so low level of ethics is that they've picked up the actual ethical level of the engineering community. That's a judgment on me, too. I'm, I'm a chemical engineer.
1: Yeah, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, how we as faculty can influence that student community. Because uh, you're right. We, it's all about practice and, and uh, observation, observation. Uh, you know, we try to do that in the courses course through case studies, but it's not the same as, as living ethically and observing someone else do that and make those tough but right decisions. Thank you. So with that,
0: let's thank our speaker once again.